I've been too busy this week, and for an introvert, I've been around too many people. <laughs> and the stillness is really nice. Okay, so we're going to drop into Mark's Gospel this morning, chapter 10. I know I, I frequently say this is one of my favorite chapters of the Bible or one of my favorite verses. I have lots of favorites. In verse 13 it says, And they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them and laying his hands on them. I had a few extra hours with my grandson, Caleb, this week uh, because he was running a temperature and could not go to school. And uh, fevers tend to make me nervous, and that's because two of our sons had febrile seizures uh, you know, at different times, and that's just the scariest thing. So when the fever starts to rise, uh, I get nervous about it. I can understand why parents would want to bring their children to Jesus to have him touch them. That they knew that there was this divine power in him and that his touch was full of healing and and, uh, the, the care of God. What I can't understand is why the disciples would try to stop them. And I, I, if you've seen the, the Lord of the Rings trilogy or read it back in the 60s, uh, a, a decade that no one really remembers if they were there, um, then you might remember Sam Ganji's uh, behavior towards Gollum. He didn't trust him, he didn't like him, and he always ran interference between Frodo and, and Gollum mistreating Gollum frequently. And that's how I see the disciples here, that they're running interference for Jesus. And sometimes it is embarrassing when Christians are less loving and kind and understanding than unbelievers or even atheists. And uh, the disciples uh, are definitely acting out of the char- outside the character of Jesus at this point. So he, he, Jesus is indignant. How dare you? Uh, let the kids come to me. And... Uh, from the time when Jesus first spoke in chapter 1 of Mark, his message all the way through has been the kingdom of God. And now he places children right at the center of the kingdom. And he says if anyone's going to get into the kingdom, it's going to be because they become like, the, like children and receive the kingdom as a child. Uh, the kingdom of heaven belongs to them, he says. And how did these children receive the kingdom of God? Well, um, Jesus took, took them in his arms, and he blessed them, and he placed his hands on them. I think that taking them in his arms implies all of the things it means when a parent holds a child, or a grandparent. Uh, I'm sorry. Caleb's six years old, okay? So he's... he's uh, He's not a big six-year-old, but he's, he's enough of a big, and he's always wanting me to hold him still. And he, he knows that he can't get his dad to do it, but he knows just holding up his hands and putting on that face of his that um, he can get grandpa to do it. 
And, uh, you know, for a while, I'm like, Caleb, you know, you've got two strong legs. You've got all this excess energy. You just do your own walking. He says, oh, Grandpa, you know, it's too far. And one morning it occurred to me, you know, I'm fortunate that he wants to be held right now. And so I've been picking him up uh, quite a bit. And it's a moment. Do you know what I mean? It, it, it's a moment where I'm able to hold him and he's holding on to me. And this week with his fever not feeling you know, up to par, his head's on my shoulder and he's just like hanging on to me. And that's how I see Jesus holding the children. That uh, whatever a child gets from a parent holding, holding the child, you know, the assistance, the protection, the nurture, the affection, all of it, um, this is coming from Jesus to them. The blessing and the laying on of hands, well, this is ritual, and it's, it's well-known ritual. And in the Old Testament, this is how fathers passed on uh, the blessings from the wealth of their own soul to the, their children. They'd lay their hands on them, and they would speak words of blessing over them. And so Jesus is, is taking that role, too. This is the warmest picture I can imagine of what God's kingdom looks like. Uh, you're in the kingdom of God when you're a child held in the arms of Jesus. The story highlights the touch of Jesus. The parents come asking for this, and then Jesus really does touch uh, in, in these three ways. The next story highlights the look of Jesus, and what I am referring to is when he is looking at someone or a group of people. And how the look of Jesus opens the door to the kingdom. Um, if he's looking at you, if he's talking to you, you have a chance. And then the last story that I want to look at today highlights the, the word of Jesus. All right, so um, in verse 17, as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, I have kept, he drops the good, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven and come follow me. But at these words, he was saddened and went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. All right, Mark jumps from the story of children to a man who comes running up to Jesus. And what this man got right was that he knelt before Jesus. If, if Jesus taking the children in his arms is a significant coming from one direction, kneeling before Jesus is significant coming from our direction. And, uh, and he did right by taking his question to Jesus. Uh, I want eternal life. What do I have to do to inherit it? But he makes two statements that reveal the wrong idea that he has. First, he addressed Jesus as good teacher. And then secondly, he said, 
what, will, what, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Now, Jesus just said, you have to receive the kingdom. He didn't say you have to work for the kingdom. You have to receive the kingdom like a child. But he's asking, what, what will I have to do to inherit eternal life? All right? What's the problem with him calling Jesus good teacher? This is really nothing more than a polite greeting. Uh, and he was trying to show Jesus respect. He, he could just say teacher, as many people did when addressing Jesus. But he adds good because he wants to, to, to show Jesus that he ad admires him. Uh, Jesus, however, made it an issue. He did not have to do that. It was so normal. It was, it was such a common thing to address a rabbi with these kinds of um, introductions that in normal interaction and dialogue, nothing would be made of it. He, he really didn't do anything wrong. He really was being polite. But Jesus makes it an issue. Um, he asks him a question. Why do you call me good? But that Jesus did not expect an answer from him is evidence because Jesus just goes right on and says, well, you know the commandments. He says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. Now, you know the commandments. There's no break there, right? There's no pause to let him talk. And, and what does that mean? It means Jesus is, is asking a rhetorical question. He's actually making a point. He wants to drive something home to him. Jesus asked, why? Why did you say good? Why did you choose that word? It's not that Jesus is denying that he's good or denying that he's God. That's not the point. The point is that goodness is a criterion only God can meet. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Only God meets the criterion of good. He cuts to the heart of the man's wrong idea. He came assuming that he could do something good enough to earn eternal life. Are you getting that? Okay, and Jesus is saying only God is good. So there's nothing good enough that you can do to inherit. In other words, he's cutting at uh, his assumptions so that he can lead him the direction that the man really wants to go. But he's going to have to give up this idea this is something he can earn. This thought is also revealed in his question, you know, what shall I do? And Jesus' response, more or less, is, well, if you want to make this about doing, you know the commandments. And then he, he lists a few of the commandments. What would the man hear in this reply? You know the commandments. And, and the things Jesus quotes he's done since he was a young person. Well, what he hears inferred might get him to ask, well, Jesus, are you saying then that I'm already doing enough because I keep all these commandments? That's one possibility, one possible conclusion, huh? Or he could infer, well, yes, I, I know that. I've done that all my life, but I don't feel like it's enough. Maybe he's in both those places. Maybe he's saying, well, are you, 
Are you saying I've done enough because I've kept the commandments, but I don't feel like I've done enough. I don't feel like I have eternal life. I, you probably did not notice this, and I'm not sure that I noticed it. I've read the Bible over 40 times. I'm not sure I noticed it uh, until this week. Uh, I may have noticed and forgot, but when Jesus quotes these commandments, he's quoting from the big ten, right? We recognize them from the Ten Commandments. Except, do not defraud. That's not one of the big ten. Where did Jesus get that one? And why did he pull that one out when he made his point just by quoting those others from the big ten? Do not defraud. Is it possible that this man was, in a sense, defrauding God? Maybe. Was he defrauding other people? Perhaps, maybe that's how he got his wealth. Um, it's been done before. Was he defrauding himself? I think that's very possible. And I think that that would be Jesus' concern. You are defrauding yourself by your whole thought, your, your assumptions, and by coming to me with this particular question as if you could do something to inherit eternal life. I don't know. I don't, you know okay, I'm, not just, I'm not teaching you theology here or correct doctrine. I'm just teaching you my doctrine, which is to me the most correct. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, perhaps this is a clue. You know, Jesus is, is tossing him these clues. Is he getting it? Uh, we don't know. When Jesus explained what was missing and what he could do, well, you know, you're only missing one thing, which is great. I'm sure if Jesus said, well, okay, here's what you're missing. Sit down. This is going to take a while. And, and then this, he pulls out this long list. You know, that bullwinkle list. It just goes ding, 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 ding. Um, but with this guy, it's, you know, there's only one, one problem here, one thing you're missing. And here's what you have to do about it. Uh, liquidate your assets. Give the income to the poor and come follow me. And you'll have treasure. So don't worry about what you give up. You'll have more. You'll get more than what you leave behind. When Jesus explains this, the man was saddened and he went away grieving. And I think Jesus probably watched him for a while walking away. And I don't know if Jesus shook his head, bit his lip. I don't know if a sadness came over his own eyes. The man has his answer, but the answer disappoints and discourages and grieves, and he walks away from Jesus. Can you see now why Jesus made the point, only God is good? It's because all of our human goodness is insufficient to get us there. Um, Paul said, if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. But the scripture has put up, uh, pardon me, has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. God made the way to eternal life personal. He made the way into the kingdom of heaven personal. It's not a reward for completing 
certain tasks or a certain number of tasks. Well, do I have to keep all the laws or is it enough just to keep the big 10? Um, do I have to keep all some, uh, ceremonial laws? Could I just keep the moral laws? And, uh, and if I keep them all, then can I become, then, I can, then can I swear my citizenship to heaven? Then can I be, become that, this person who belongs in the kingdom of God? It's not about fulfilling some requirements. It's about being held in the arms of Jesus. Um, I don't think that Jesus wants anyone to be grieved by his words. I don't think he wants people to, to go away sad and, and gloomy because he asks too much, uh, especially not if, if he's inviting them to come and be with him. Come and be with me. Follow me. He doesn't want that to make people sad. Uh, though I'm sure he knows that sometimes his words are a disappointment at first, but that disappointment is re replaced by joy once a person makes the decision and begins to follow Jesus. And, and the Lord knows that too. Anyway, Jesus won't compromise his message just to avoid hurt feelings. If a person follows Jesus, Jesus will be with that person forever. It will be a relationship forged in truth as well as love. And so... He, he just gives us the truth. Okay, I'm just going to be with that for a second. Excuse me. I can't stand it when people aren't straight with me. I can't stand double talk because someone's trying to tell me yes when they mean no. I can't stand deceit. Um, Honestly, I don't know how much I deceive myself, and I realize that I have. I don't like that either. For someone to speak to me the truth that I love, even if at first I say, uh-uh, inside where it hits, it says, uh-huh, and I come to appreciate that. Thank you for telling me the truth. And you know that being in truth and insisting on truth, Jesus will always be there. He'll always stand where he said he would stand. His, his hand will always take ours when we hold ours out to him. Truth means reliable. In fact, in the Hebrew, uh, the word emet, which is translated truth, is also translated faithfulness because Truth is not an abstraction. Uh, the Hebrews were not Greek philosophers. And they did not talk about truth as a concept. They talked about truth in very pragmatic ways. And so truth can be translated faithfulness. This is someone who is true to themselves, true to their word, true to reality. Okay, so um, verse 23. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, children, which I think that's significant, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. 
they were even more astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, with people it is impossible, but not with God. With God, all things are possible. So only God is good. With God, all things are possible. And what we lack, he has. Now, until, until this moment, Jesus has been looking at the man, but now he turns and he looks uh, after the man has walked away, he looks around and he says, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy. And he, of course, he has this illustration right in front of them. Notice that the man was asking about eternal life and Jesus is talking about entering the kingdom of God. And that's because the, uh, the two are synonymous. And I, and I want to say this, that eternal life is not what happens after we die. We live this temporary life and enter eternal life. Eternal life is the life that comes to us now. So it's more than just living forever. It is a depth of life. Uh, Jesus said, I've come that they might have life and life more abundantly. It's a, it's a quality of life. There's more volume to eternal life, okay? Even in this present moment, there's more volume to the eternal life that we have. And this is the life of the kingdom of God. Um, Anyway, the point is here that wealth can get in the way. Um, whether you have wealth, or even if you don't have wealth but obsess over it, it can get in the way. And what gets in our way um, is all the stuff that, that Jesus lists in uh, verse 29. Uh, Peter says, well, Lord, what about us? We've given up everything to follow you. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first now will be last then. The um, what gets in our way is not all of this stuff. It's not possessions, money, <clears throat> or other people, but our attachments to things, money, and people. It, it is what having this stuff means to us and what losing it all or giving up all of it means to us. Well, I can't do that. The disciples um, now are dumbfounded. If it's hard for the wealthy who have all the advantages, what's to become of us poor folk? I mean, you know, if, if there's something uh, that the wealthy stood for in that culture and time was doors open to them that did not open to people who did not have wealth. Uh, they had the uh, you know, highest places in society. So, wow, what happens to us if um, even the wealthy have a hard time getting in? Then who can be saved? Who can qualify, if, even if those with all the advantages don't qualify? And, and we're about to find out who can be saved. It's, it's kind of fun, I think. But we might remember the previous story. Um, it may be hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven, but not children. 
For children, it's easy and natural. They just go skipping in, you know. Hey, there's Jesus with open arms. Let's drop the jump rope. Uh, forget the pogo stick. Uh, hex on the hula hoop anyway. And uh, let's run to Jesus and let's, let's go with him. Let's dance around him. And he just, you know. So it might be hard for the wealthy, but it's not hard for kids. Chil- children enter easily and naturally. All right. Just one more little story here. Uh, in verse 46, then they came to Jericho, and he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a large crowd, and a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. When he heard that it was Jesus, the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many were sternly telling him to be quiet. It's just like the disciples not letting the kids come to Jesus. Um, you know, this blind beggar, what an annoyance. And, you know, sometimes beggars are annoying on purpose uh, because they want to irritate you so much you give them something just to shut them up. And so, you know, they're used to this guy, um, maybe used to his, his clamoring, and so they're nearby and they say, leave him alone, leave Jesus alone, just be quiet. But that got him going. He kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called the blind man, saying to him, Take courage, stand up. He is calling for you. Throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. And answering him, Jesus said, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Teacher, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. Or, it's the same Greek word, and the disciple said, Who can be saved? Go, your faith has saved you. Immediately he regained his sight, and began following Jesus on the road. It was much easier for Bartimaeus to leave everything behind and follow Jesus than it was for the rich man. In fact, it says he threw aside his cloak. Won't be needing that anymore. Why not? Doesn't it get cold wherever Jesus is going? The, the cloak is what he spread in front of him for people to throw their coins on as they pass by. And they said, he's calling for you. And he grabbed his cloak and he threw it aside. And I can hear the coins clatter on the stone. And he goes to Jesus. You know, what, what did he have in all this world? His cloak. Don't need it anymore. It's much easier to get rid of a cloak than you know, a, a home with a view of the ocean and uh, you know, uh, three utility vehicles, you know, uh, urban assault vehicles, and uh, you know, a sports car and a motorcycle, and that's a lot harder. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> um, the rich man lost heart and walked away from Jesus. The blind man took heart and walked away with Jesus. Who can be saved? Your faith has saved you. 
all Bartimaeus had was the word of Jesus. But at Jesus' word, he was ready to go. And it was easy for him to follow Jesus. And uh, or it was easy for him to give up everything to, to go after Jesus. And he followed Jesus without even being asked. He didn't get the invitation, come and follow me. He just went and followed him. I wonder what would have happened if the rich man had said, Jesus, I can't do that. I can't get rid of everything. I've spent my whole life building this up. Or, you know, part of this came down to me from my father and my father's father and who knows how many generations. I cannot walk away from this to follow you. I can't do it. I think Jesus would have said, I know that. I know what I'm asking. Walk with me and let me help you. No, you can't do it. I mean, the disciples can't do it. Lord, who can be saved? We can't. We can't do it. We can't do what you're asking. And he says, I know. With people, it's impossible, but not with God. And, and even the wealthy man, he's not impossible for God. He can't be good enough, but God never asked him to be good enough. And he can't be strong enough, but God's willing to save him. He's too blind to find his own way, but Jesus is willing to touch his eyes and give him sight. And once he can see what is of true value, then it's not so bad. Only Mark tells us that Jesus looked at the rich man and loved him. Only Mark says, Jesus looks at him, he loves him. If what Jesus told the man, pained him. It wasn't for lack of love that Jesus said what he said. And I want to think that it was a man saying, well, I've, I've always kept those commandments that got Jesus to take a closer look at him. And, and that's what evoked Jesus' love for him, that Jesus looking at him saw a man who wanted God and tried to fulfill the requirements that were given to him by his own religion a man who wanted his wealth and God. Perhaps he earned his wealth and maybe he came thinking he could earn life in God as well. Jesus looked at him and he loved him. And next, Jesus looked around. And I think he was reading the crowd. And perhaps they were looking distressed. Like, wow, you know, if it's hard for a wealthy man... And then, uh, I mean, he said how hard it is for the wealthy, and he intensifies their stress. In fact, he took them deeper and deeper into their distress until they hit the rock bottom of their own impossibility. And that's when he revealed to them the unlimited possibilities of God or with God. And soon, as if to prove it, one even poorer than the disciples was saved and follow Jesus. So if it's a matter of qualification, Jesus will qualify you. 
if you give him the opportunity. When Jesus looks, he sees more than you and I see. Well, obviously. His eyes penetrate the surface, the obvious, the, the pose. He sees into the soul. It's despair, it's darkness, it's dysfunction, it's motivation, it's confusion, it's hope, dream, desire, need. He sees all of that. He sees the truth of it all, and his heart is moved with compassion. You see, Jesus' heart is not drawn to the hero, to the captain of the team, to the, the movie star. I mean, he's not drawn to the person who has it all. He's drawn to the brokenness of a person. And when he looks at a person, he can see that. And it doesn't matter who he's looking at. His eyes go through the disguises, and he sees the soul. And he sees its brokenness. Jesus looks and loves the soul that he sees. We need to learn from Jesus how to look, how to listen, and how to love. I think that's obvious. If we can look as he does, listen closely and love, we'll not make the mistake that the disciples made shooing away the parents or the crowd around Jericho telling blind Bartimaeus to shut up. We need to look and to listen and to love, but, and I want to say something to you right now, like my friend, as a friend, we need to let Jesus look at us. and feel compassion for us. There's a young woman in the rehab group that I've been leading, and from the first time that I saw her, I liked her. In fact, that particular day, there were only three people in that group. Two of them were young women, and both of them uh, struck me in a very positive way. with him. This young woman, I want to say girl because she seems so young to me, but then I seem so old to me. Uh, But uh, this young woman is lovely. She's bright. She's very bright, brighter than she knows, and she has depth. And this last week when I saw her Uh, She didn't contribute much to the group. It was a larger group this week, but she was holding back, and she looked sad. And so towards the end of our our meeting, I asked her, how are you doing? And tears filled her eyes, and she said, not so good today. And I thought, oh, it's one of those days where the addiction is tugging at her. It wasn't exactly that. She said... It's what happened in my last group before I came here. She said, I have an eating disorder. 
And in our group, before I came here, our instructor had us all stand in front of a mirror and describe what was wrong with us. And she said, my description of myself was the worst of anyone else in the class. Mine was the worst. And she just kind of collapsed with that. And so um, I said, you know, that condition is the most, one of the most difficult ones for therapists to deal with. She says, yes, I know. I've been in therapy for a while. You know, because this is one of her triggers, too, for numbing herself or self-medicating. But we talked about it for a bit. And she looked at me. She said, will you pray for me? And I said, I'd be happy to. At the end of group, I'll pray for you. And you know what's so neat? At the end of, of group, uh, she hung around. And I went over to pray with her. And one of the women said, well, aren't we going to pray for her? And I said, um, yeah, would you like to join us? And she said, yes, I would. And uh, so I asked the girls, is it okay with you if, if they join us? She said, yes, uh-huh. But see, they're all in the same situation and they're all like with, they have only each other right now. Some of them don't even have support outside the clinic, okay? So, so several women then gathered around her and we laid hands on her. We touched her when we prayed for her. And... God was present. Some of us, not just a couple of us, are like her, only with our soul. We don't want to see it in a mirror. We don't want to describe what's wrong with it because we're telling ourselves all the time anyway how rotten we are, what losers we are, um, how impossible it is for us to think we're going to get anywhere in God. We're going to improve anyone's life. We're going to make anything matter in this world. We, we beat ourselves up all the time. And uh, looking in the mirror just makes it worse. We need to let Jesus look at us. And then we need to see ourselves through the eyes of Jesus. We need to feel his compassion for us and have that same compassion for ourselves. Does that sound wrong to you? Because if it does sound wrong to you, then you're one of us. One of us broken people who tell ourselves we're unworthy, we're not good enough. We need then to share Jesus' compassion for us, to realize that we are loved and understood and that whatever our condition is, it doesn't qualify us, that being broken actually is what qualifies us, that whatever our condition is, we are loved in it and loved through it and someday loved out of it. I will tell you now, that if you can do this, if you can let Jesus look at you and say to you, I love you, and believe that he's talking to your soul, he's not saying, I love your sense of humor. I love what an athlete you are. 
I love how much you've accomplished. He's not saying any of that. None of that is even relevant. He's saying, I love you. If you can hear that, from that moment on, you are going to treat others with more love and compassion and kindness. It will flow naturally from a heart that's changing. Would you stand with me, please? May the Lord our God do the impossible in each one of our lives. May we realize all we have to do is ask. And even if we don't ask the right way, he'll help us figure that out. But if we do ask in faith, we will be saved. And we will see. May the Lord keep us in his love. Keep all evil away and lead us into eternal life, the kingdom of heaven, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.